And we are back for the second installment of this very special two-part episode of Hell and High Water with my guest and friend, Mike Bender of The Wall Street Journal, the author of the fantabulous new book, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, the inside story of how Trump lost. But before we resume, Mike, let's take a listen uh, to a little bit from the man of the hour, Donald Trump, at one of his recent post-presidential rallies. I don't know. They still make you go to these rallies? Is that something that's still part of your job description when you're not on book leave? Anyway, <laughs> um, let, this is Trump, one of those recent post-presidential rallies, this one at the Lorain County Fairgrounds in Ohio. Together, we will send Joe Biden and the fake news media. There's a lot of people back there. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Do you miss me? They miss me. They miss me. I know. They look at their bad ratings and they're saying, we miss this guy. So there he is, <laughs> Donald Trump in Ohio, late June, talking about the press, doing a thing. You know, we've been watching Mike. We've been watching him do this for years, right? We do at rallies of like one of the standard Trump things. It's pointing to the point of the riser, talking mm-hmm. about the fake news media. I've often been on those risers. You've been on a lot of risers mm-hmm. or in a lot of places where the press file is, where the president's pointing and mocking, deriding, sometimes stirring up near or more than near violent animus among his crowds towards the press in rather sometimes very uncomfortable circumstances. Uh, and he's still doing it, talking about fake news media. But there's a thing in that thing. I want to talk about how you became a member of the fake news media. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that. And then we'll talk about whether Trump's right that the press actually does miss him. Okay. The Bender story begins in Ohio, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you got bit by the journalism bug. I didn't really even consider journalism until I was in college. I mean, I grew up in Cleveland. The Cleveland Plain Dealer was dropped at my driveway every morning. It was a race between my dad and I to get the paper to, you know, to grab the sports page first, uh, which I blame him for, you know, I just can't look away from the Browns. Those orange helmets are like the Cleveland Indians or Cavs. It's really a curse. But um, They'll win win eventually. Don't worry, Mike. (laughs) This year, this year. Um, I went to Ohio State and was taking my round of electives and for a degree in U.S. history, and it was a Journalism 101 class. And it dawned on me there that this kind of had all the things I was looking for. I really enjoyed writing. This offered me something to write about and write about different things every day. And having grown up in Cleveland and gone to school in Columbus, I was sort of like looking for a different kind of experience after college, trying to maybe live somewhere else for a little bit and seeing what that was like. And at the time, Every town in America had a newspaper. This right. was a bit, I graduated in 2000 uh, and some too. So uh, that sparked a, a newspaper career. I went to the, um, I ended up working for the college paper, uh, some internships in Columbus. And I worked for newspapers in Ohio, Colorado, and Florida for the, you know, the first dozen years, first 12, 13 years of my career. Just to go back, right? Your love of newspapers really started, mm-hmm. you know, with the plain dealer landing every day in your driveway and you, you know, racing out of the house to try to beat your dad to get hold of it and get hold of the sports pages, really, right? You're, <laughs> you're, I, I'm sitting here like having a, an acid flashback to my youth um, mm-hmm. where my dad was the same as your dad. He got the LA mm-hmm. Times like exclusively for the sports section. He could throw out any part of the paper that didn't mention either the Dodgers or the Lakers if it didn't have one of those two teams reporting it. He was like, fuck that. I don't need it. And it sounds like your parents uh, were kind of like that, not. I mean, my dad paid attention to the news, but not like I'm pouring the newspaper for uh, foreign news. And it sounds like your parents were a little like that, too. Uh, so I'm curious, like what they thought when you started talking about becoming a journalist. Did they 
think it was like a legit profession and they were like, oh, we're so proud. Uh, or they kind of like going, shit, like we wanted a doctor or a lawyer. You know, my parents, like they were very encouraging of whatever I wanted to do, but I can't say they totally understood like what the journalism racket was all about. So I guess I'm wondering whether yours did. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a really fair question. And it was different than anything um, in my family. My grandfather was a, a scientist and uh, became a, an executive. My aunts and uncles are accountants and businessmen and businesswomen. Dad's an accountant. And I, here I came like offering journalism. But my parents were actually, they were always supportive. I think two things. One is like I'd never really talked seriously about a career with my mom since I wanted to be uh, become a baseball player for the Cleveland Indians. So my parents were just both thrilled that I had shown like was showing some interest in a specific career path. And my dad, my dad didn't want to become an accountant. He wanted to have a big family and he saw accounting as a way to support a big family and to let his wife stay home and raise us all. Um, so he was, he was thrilled that I was excited about something and was pursuing, um, wanted to pursue a career that, that I wanted to for its own sake as, as opposed to as a means to an end. Right. I mean, you said you were a history major, mm -hmm. but were you like a politics junkie back then? No, I, I really wasn't. I and, and and still wouldn't consider myself a junkie. It sounds weird, but my interest really was history. I, the classes I liked growing up were the social studies and history classes. I, I liked the stories and I liked writing. And what attracted me to politics was both of those, was the history of the moment. And when I write about policy, like I, I don't really feel strongly about particular policies. I mean, it really is true. Like, and it's not just like a journalism trope. Like I've never really identified myself as a Republican or a Democrat. And that sort of bleeds into these different policy issues. I don't have super strong feelings on, you know, what should be done with the infrastructure bill or what right. corporate tax rate should be. Um, what yeah. fascinates me is the stories behind that, the relationships and the interactions and the negotiations that are all at play to get these deals done and to get these policies written, right? I mean, it's a relationship business, it's a people business, and these things don't get done because of necessarily who has the best idea, it's who's put the work in to build the relationships and knows how to leverage that stuff, which is endlessly fascinating to me. And so this is kind of where, you know, you end up writing a whole a bunch of different places in Florida, covering a bunch of stuff in Florida mm -hmm. in that period around 2010. Basically the tail end of Jeb Bush mm -hmm. and then Charlie Crist, you were at the Tampa Bay Times, right? When uh, when Rick Scott ran for governor. That's right. I'm kind of like compressing all of your Florida mm -hmm. experience. You were in Tallahassee for a while because that's all the stuff you did right before Bloomberg discovered the talents of Mike Bender down there covering <laughs> Florida politics, which is a serious thing. I mean, there are a lot of places in the country where the leap from from local or state politics or city politics mm -hmm. to national politics is is a leap, yeah. right? And I think you know, as a big institution like Bloomberg, where you and I worked together for a period of time is looking around, you look at like, what are the places where you're going to go find someone who has the chops to make the jump from state to national politics? You look at places like Florida, that big state with a bunch of people like Jeb Bush, people like Rick Scott, people who had national aspirations right now, Ron DeSantis is arguably beyond Donald Trump, yeah. the Republican who people think has the best shot at 2024. Mm -hmm. You can make what you will of that. But it's an interesting place to learn the ropes in politics. I'm curious about how you found covering Florida politics and what you learned there that came in handy as you made the move to national politics. One thing I learned in this career path is working for metros and even community newspapers, writing about people who are actually going to read the paper that morning, right? Getting the right. paper delivered that morning. And you have yeah. to see in the in the grocery store the next day or out in the neighborhood and the accountability that brings with, you know, you're not just firing something off into the internet on a blog for someone in, you know, on the other side of the country to read and, and interpret however they want. I mean, it, it was really important for my career and understanding the business and understanding how to report and how to fact check and how to get things right and how to talk to a lot of people to do that. 
you know, and then as that applied to Florida, I mean, Florida is, as you were saying, I mean, it's my first paper in Florida was the Palm Beach Post. The Palm Beach Post is competing with Florida Sun Sentinel. The South Florida Sun Sentinel is competing with the Miami Herald. And the Palm Beach Post is a fraction of the size of both of those, but we're punching above our weight and trying to compete with everyone all in the same space in like some of the most fertile ground for news in the country. You have all these different demographics, all these age ranges, yeah. right? Like you have all thrown together on like a very on a continuous stretch of, of beach, you know, for 90 miles there. Um, and you haven't even mentioned that the St. Pete Times, which was, you know, for oh, a period yeah. of time was like back in, in my somewhat earlier day among this level newspaper was like one of the, I mean, the incredible talent came out of St. Petersburg, like an amazing, yeah. amazing, pulsing, throbbing, fecund newspaper environment in Florida for a very, very long time. Yeah. And, but, and for different reasons, right? I mean, you, 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 the, the, the people and the reporters you, you sort of think about coming out of South Florida and those papers are, are news grinders, right? I mean, it is a, it is a. Uh, dog eat dog world in, in in that stretch of the state when I was there and before me for news and crazy news right like um, the guy who bit off the side of the other other man's face at, you know a few years ago you know that kind yeah. of stuff and St Pete's is sort of the sleepier uh, side yeah. of Florida but but St Pete develops to compete is the best writer's paper in the country right yes a dozen Pulitzer prizes mostly for for their writing and you know deeply reported pieces and and that that all comes together in politics you you know and you have a, a state producing all of these politicians who are national figures right i mean it's it's the biggest battleground right. state in the country for for decades at this point yep. if you rise to the top there you're immediately a national figure to draw back to journalism a little bit i mean again it's it's just so important to to treat people fairly, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not saying to be easy on them, but but if they know you're they're getting a fair shake, and um, you know, Marco Rubio was House Majority Leader when I started in, in Tallahassee. You know, I sat in his office and as House Speaker at the Florida House and watched the NFL draft one year, right? I mean, we, we all knew he was ambitious, we didn't, you know, but like my my point being, like those people, like all became. He and the people around him are, are now in movers and shakers in Washington on, on a national level. And, you know, these are, it's again, politics is a relationship business. So is journalism. The only currency we have is our trustworthiness. And, you know, if you blow that chasing a, a city council story or a state legislative story or, you know, an attorney general race, that, that stuff will not just will, will come back to haunt you. And, you know, I think I've been been lucky in that respect to have created some good relationships, a good foundation, not just in Colorado, but also in Florida that has helped me in Washington too. So here, here you come out of Florida. Yeah. Bloomberg brings you on down mm -hmm. in Florida initially, and then up to Washington. And this is kind of around, you know, in 2016, 2014, 2015 is when our paths crossed mm -hmm. your, yours and mine. And, you know, I, I think about that time because it also is when all of our, when your path, when all of these things intersect around Donald Trump in the 2016 campaign. I can't remember. Were you were you the original Trump assignment that we had for you at Bloomberg Politics? You were, were you the first person we had assigned to Trump? No, because that was surreal. Yeah, because I was covering the front runner, John. I was covering like right, the, you the were covering guys, Jeb, Jeb and yes. Rubio, right? Like I, those are the guys I knew. Right. And right. Uh, I, I yep. remember having a conversation with you and the editors about like Trump's polling and that it should be right that everyone was kind of making fun of him, but he was, you know, he, his polling suggested otherwise. Yep. And like, okay, Bender, you, you know, you check in. I'm like, oh, no, 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 not me. You know, it's a good idea to cover him, but I'm, I'm covering the front runner here, guys. Right. I can't, po you yeah. know, be po possibly bothered with this guy. Yes. So, so no, I didn't, I, I didn't end up covering, I covered Jeb till the end. I really wanted to write the end of that story. And, right. and even the, the Jeb obit, 
that I did with John Homans remains now, if not the favorite, one of the favorite stories I've ever written in you know 20 years in this business. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and read that now. You know, John Homans, for people who don't know, famous long form magazine editor who um, had edited me at New York Magazine for 20 years mm -hmm. and I, who I brought with me to Bloomberg and ended up editing a bunch of other talented young people, including uh, Bender here, who learned, who were like, God, I've heard this guy's kind of a genius. And um, it turns out he really was a genius yeah. and who just uh, passed away about a year ago, um, mm -hmm. tragically from uh, various cancers. Um, and we all miss him every day. Oh, terribly. There was, there was a lot of moments in this book, John, I would tell you um, that I could hear, I can, I can hear Homans telling me in the background, you know, that's, that's a score, right? That's you know? a score. Yeah. I was talking to somebody the other day about all the number of columns I wrote in New York Magazine for John, where we'd be getting close to the deadline and the deadline was always, for my deadlines were always like artificially late because <laughs> I could never make a deadline in my life. And at some point I always knew I was really getting, really pushing the thing to the point where if I didn't get it in soon, there was going to be blank pages in the magazine. When I would get an email from Holmes, Holmes that would just say, how's the poetry, my friend? Um, <laughs> how's the poetry, my friend, was basically like the four alarm fire uh, that uh, that I was about to cause a real problem in New York Magazine. Uh, how's the poetry, my friend? Uh, so yeah, I mean, miss him, miss him to death. And and I think, you know, if you're, if you're like everybody else with John, you probably learned a lot just from having done some amount of work with him um, yep. in that period at Bloomberg. And I now remember, of course, you were covering Jeb because as people now, uh, it's hard to remember. It's hard to believe that Jeb Bush was the front runner in 2016. <laughs> and that was like, everyone was like, it's going to be Jeb versus Hillary, Jeb versus Hillary. And so a plum job was, hey, Mike Bender from oh, Florida, yeah. he knows Jeb really well. Go, you're going to be covering the front runner, maybe the next president of the United States. And it took about, you know, I think by about August and that first debate, you looked up and went, man, Jeb is just not this is not going to be his game. It's uh, true. Yeah. With Trump. So I, I guess I, that is the question I wanted to ask you, right? So you left Bloomberg, went to work mm -hmm. for, for the journal uh, in the course of 2016, and, and Trump becomes your life. Mm -hmm. um, as you had observed that campaign starting and seeing the way in which he was decimating everybody. Yeah. Giant field, 17 candidates. Trump just mowed down everybody, right, from the very beginning. And it became clear that he was going to be the nominee. I just, I'm curious what you kind of, how you thought about what, having watched him, the way in which he did what he did and the way in which he reduced Jeb to dust so quickly. How did you greet the prospect of, okay, now I'm like the Donald Trump reporter yeah. and the fact there's that it's been came to your life for five years? <laughs> I mean, I know there, there, there's two moments where I have to like confront that question. One is when he becomes the nominee and you're right. It was basically August where Trump, it was, it, it was clear that Trump had, was resonating. And I remember telling the Jeb people that like, Trump is going to be the nominee. Like, there's no doubt in my mind. Like, there's no way he's he's disappearing. And I say that, and like, you know, like, sure, Bender. Like, in hindsight, yeah, of course. But to say that when he became the nominee, I immediately talked myself out of it. <laughs> That's how I kind of dealt with it. Was that like Hillary Clinton, lover or hater, was the most qualified presidential candidate on paper of my lifetime. Right. And she had a machine. And she had just beaten a guy in the Democratic primary who was drawing arena-sized crowds, right? Like, these crowds don't mean anything, right? Because, like, Hillary just showed, like, that it's not actually uh, a one-to-one -one thing. So right. I was convinced I was just writing, you know, the death of the Republican Party at that point, which turns out to be wrong. And, uh, my, <laughs> you know... <laughs> There is, there is a, you know, election night 2016, even in, in the Wall Street Journal's Washington Bureau is a night I will um, never, never forget and, and how much copy had to be rewritten on the fly that night. But then there's the question of like covering him as president, right? And we were, I was one of a five member team covering Trump as the Republican nominee. And 
exactly one of us went into the White House. All of my other colleagues were like, no fucking way, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, next time, thanks, but no thanks. I've had my fill. You know, it's more just like like you were talking about before, like the two or three news cycles that, that Trump dominates in a single day. The journal, for some reason, only wanted to pass for one of those news cycles every day. And, um, you know, and if you had in a journal, uh, like you were saying before, uh, it, it's mostly, you know, veteran reporters who have years in the in the business, have families. Right. And Trump had shown that he was willing to create news at any time of the day over anything, create policies on Twitter. And it's just exhausting. But like, on the other hand, it was the opportunity to cover the White House for the Wall Street Journal. And like the two didn't even compare to me. I was just like, I was all in. I was I was ready to go. And um, in, in a weird way, I would much rather cover campaigns than, than the White House. I, I would much rather be out, you know, uh, at stops in Iowa or New Hampshire, uh, talking to people in South Carolina, making reservations for dinner in, you know, in, in Colombia. But in a weird way, it, Trump was a lot more fun, rewarding to cover in the White House because um, none of that stuff happened in 2016. Right. It was the plane would would land in right. in Nashville. Uh, the campaign would stay on the on the plane. Trump would come out, scream at us all for two hours, get back on the plane, and fly back to New York. Like there were no moments right. to like right. catch them at the Best Western in the White House. They were all contained, right? Right, and everyone was there. They couldn't get away from us. So like it was right. it was much yeah. it, it was more of a campaign feel in the White House um, than the, the campaign itself. So Julia Ioffe just wrote this piece, which mm-hmm. is basically that's been getting a lot of attention in our world, which is kind of a the press missing Trump. Um, mm-hmm. In some ways, her thing is kind of like how are reporters who covered Trump dealing with the transition to Biden, mm-hmm. the reduction in adrenaline, the different tempo. It, it couldn't be more different, right? Black and yeah. white. How is everybody kind of coping with it? And there's a lot in the piece. I'm just curious about your view about that, like mm-hmm. what it's been like. It was an enormous challenge to to cover the past administration, but also, I mean, a time when the, the press never felt more important, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody was on that thing of like, this is yeah. a moment when the stakes are very high every day. When it felt like, you know, the basic bedrock of and it did, I not only felt that way, but was where the basic kind of underpinnings of American democracy seemed to be. Trump was trashing institutions and norms every day. And so the stakes seemed really high and the role of the press was it's always there, but it was much more front and center, much more obvious. You know, talk a little bit about whether you felt like that in the process of covering it and in writing the book mm-hmm. and how you feel about it now that you're on the other side and the book is written and and it's kind of the summation in a lot of ways yeah. of your whole of this whole period of your of your professional career. Everything you said about Trump's driving interest in politics and and journalism again is is all definitely true. And and I've heard you actually speak about this too. It's all part of a trajectory. I mean, Trump amplified it, no question, but the American public has been getting more and more interested in in, in American politics for decades now really, right? And there's data that that shows this. But not only did Trump sort of supercharge that, but like during the pandemic, he was the only thing on TV, right? You know, you liked sports, like you tuned into his news conferences to see the game, right? If you liked kind of like drama shows on, in the evening, like none, nothing new was getting made, really. So you tuned into his COVID news conferences to see what the drama was. I mean, it was Trump has a gift for attracting eyeballs and driving news. And, you know, that is not only is that different from Biden, but but this was Biden's campaign promise, right? Like he promised right. to basically be the boring guy. like, And so that you didn't have to turn on your TV every day to see what the president was going to say. So on one sense, I would say that it's not surprising at all. We, you know, I, I don't feel nostalgia for that change. I mean, and I'm just talking as a journalist covering it. It was exhausting. I'm a big fan of Julia. And I, I talked to her for that piece. And yeah. um, she, she doesn't exactly say this, but there's a sense that, that it was easier during Trump. 
right? And that like there was all this news and and now it's so much harder. I would say that, that covering these two presidents present equal challenges. The, the, the challenge of these two guys are, are, are equal. One is that Trump was such a flood of news. There was so much happening and he was such an unreliable narrator, narrator of it all that it did make it easier for my profession to cut corners. Like, I mean, there's, it's just a fact. I mean, the West Wing didn't know how to push back. It didn't know how to manage these stories. And, and there was very limited opportunity for them to anyway because of how rapidly the next story was coming. Um, so if you wanted to tell an accurate story, like you had to talk to way more people and put in way more work for these stories than you would have for any other administration where there's generally an agreed upon version of what happened in that meeting, right? right. Um, which is the challenge now is getting that agreed upon version. You have to talk to a lot of people in order to find someone who's willing to tell you what happened. I mean, the nice thing is, is that it, there's not as many competing versions of that, but it, I, I think the challenges are equal and they're, it's just as hard. Uh, I don't know about mm -hmm. equal because I do think uh, there are special mm -hmm. challenges involved when you're dealing as a reporter with an environment like this one where, you know, led by the president, the default mode is to deceive. If for no other reason than that, there's a lot more, uh, in fact, to be deceitful about. And I want to come back to this point and the particular challenges that it poses for anyone like you, Mike, uh, who cares a lot about the truth and is trying to capture that truth between hardcovers in a book for history with sources like those in Trump world. It sounds kind of tricky to me. So uh, we're going to take a quick break, uh, listen to some advertisements, and then we will talk about uh, all of that on the other side here on Hell and High Water with my guest, Mike Bender. And we are back with the second installment of a special two-part episode of Hell and High Water with my pal, Mike Bender. Uh, before the break, Mike, we were talking about your experiences reporting on Trump. And I have a very particular question that goes directly to the book writing process, which is how to deal with the problems posed by sources who are what we call in the news business unreliable narrators. Unreliable narrator is a great term of art for a lot of things, covers a lot of sins. Uh, but the unreliable narrator problem is an even bigger problem in dealing with Donald Trump's team, who were famously a bunch of fat fucking lying liars who lied all the time. Uh, speaking of which, let's take a listen to Stephen Miller, the <laughs> ultimate unreliable narrator, as borne out by his recent appearance here with Sean Hannity. No president in history has been dealt a better hand on day one than President Biden. Think about what President Trump left him and what it's become. You have cities out of control with crime. We have open borders. We have the Middle East in tatters. We have Afghanistan falling to pieces. We have an economy with massive inflation, runaway spending, and we have jobs that should be filled and not to be filled, but unwise fiscal stimulus policy is keeping workers out of the workforce. This is a disaster. Where is it leading, So Sean? listening it's to that, Mike, to uh, I can't help but ask, <laughs> how did you deal with the unreliable narrator problem mm -hmm. and that it wasn't just Trump is the most unreliable narrator of all time. It's that a lot of the people around Trump are incredibly unreliable narrators. Mm -hmm. And I mean this in a very specific way when it comes to writing a book, you know, having done a, a couple of them mm -hmm. that relate to reconstructed history, things you mm -hmm. did not witness, mm -hmm. you know, where you were not in the room and you were relying on the memories, uh, sometimes contemporaneous notes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get lucky and someone's tape recorded something mm -hmm. or audio recorded something, but you know, notes, 
uh, emails, documentation, memos, text messages, uh, yeah. messages, voicemails, text messages, all of that, sometimes contemporaneous, sometimes after the fact. Sometimes you're just relying on their memory because you're doing an interview after the fact, but it all you're putting it all together, right, to to write a scene in your book mm -hmm. uh, or in a book like Game Change. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're trying to exhibit the highest fidelity to the closest approximation of the truth, sometimes you get very, you, ideally you get very lucky where you, you talk to everybody who was in the room, mm -hmm. you get all the evidence put together. And, and although there's some small disagreements about matters that are marginal on the important big things that happen, there's fundamental agreement and you, you're, you're never going to get perfect. You weren't there. Right. Memories are faulty, mm -hmm. but you're like, okay, I've cross tabulated this. I've looked at this from every possible angle. And I think I know what happened in that room in, in every important dimension. Then there's the other, the, the other extreme, which is like fundamental disagreements between people in the room, mm -hmm. like where you can't square the circle and you don't really trust anybody you're talking to. Yeah. And unless you have a contemporaneous recording of that event, you're having to somehow render professional judgment about who to believe and, and how do you try to get to a point where you're comfortable writing this thing as if it happened without saying so-and-so said the following and the other person said there was, you know, I mean, obviously one of the ways out of this is to just say, you know, that memories differ or that people dispute what happened in the room. But if you're trying to get to the point where you can write like what you think has really happened, it's a real challenge when you have either unreliable reliable narrators or fundamental disagreements. This is a hard problem even when you're not dealing with, with a bunch of pathological liars. This is a, an incredibly difficult thing to deal with. Did you find it as difficult as I imagine it to be? And then if you did, how did you cope with that yeah. in trying to do a book for history where you wanted to get somewhere close in the same zip code, yeah. at least with the truth, if not without ever being able to know exactly whether you got everything exactly right in every detail? It was extremely hard. It was extremely hard. And I went down a lot of rabbit holes and, and struggled in real time with how to handle these questions. Right. I kind of sort of um, divided it in two ways. There were some things that were just either happened or didn't happen. Right. And other things that people's impressions could be different. Right. And their interpretations of a conversation or a moment. So I kind of tried to first sort of separate those depending on how much time I would devote to a, a detail. Uh, a colleague of mine, Ted Mann, he wrote a book uh, at the Wall Street Journal. He was a helpful person to talk to for me for, through this process. And at, at some point, he just told me that, you know, these competing stories, yeah. that's the story at right. some point, right? Instead of trying to figure out exactly what was said or exactly what happened or, you know, who made this decision and why, the fact that there are all these senior people around Trump disputing that, that's its own story, right? That's its own right. fact. Um, yeah. And is maybe more illustrative of what was going on and what happened than exactly who said what. Yeah. So there's a couple of instances in the book where I, I try to just say like, th these are the different versions of what happened. Uh, Trump's COVID test is one of those. Um, and I just made sure that I talked to as many people as I could and gave people as many opportunities to discuss scenes in the book that they're involved in yeah. or, you know, um, decisions that they were part of. Uh, that's a good answer. And you're basically saying to me, like, it's really fucking hard. The one thing I learned in working on Game Change and Double Down was just how flawed memories are. Even people oh, yeah. are really trying to tell you the truth. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. The problem of memory is a huge problem for people who are writing history and nonfiction is that even people in who have great memories in good faith, um, they change their story. You, you, you interview them in February and then you interview them in May and they tell you something different between the two things. And they're not actually trying to lie to you. They're just like, yeah. they've just in the course of three months, they, they tell you, you're like, what are you going to do with that? 
Like that, that was a technique I used too, like a sort of like a police investigative technique is, is just right. sort of like ask the, in some of these instances, I have to ask the same people the same questions like a few different times. And if, you know, depending on whether their stories change over time or don't, like that was informative too. Right. It's very, very hard. But man, I mean, having to do that, having to go back and ask the same questions over and over and over again, right. it was a long process putting this thing together. It does, as I say, it leads to my last question about this matter, which is this. I mean, one of the challenges, it seems to me, and this gets into a, a very large potential discussion about, you know, the way that the press broadly handled Trump, but I'll ask it in a very specific way. I mean, I think like, you know, there, everybody talks about media bias in a variety of different ways. I think there are a lot of reporters, and I, I put myself in this category, who looked at Trump and were like, that he was just categorically different from mm -hmm. anybody else we'd ever covered. And it wasn't about like disagreeing with his policies or like, it just had to do with like reaching some kind of assessment that you thought this person is unfit for office. Did this issue come up for you? Did mm -hmm. you grapple with that question in the course of your coverage over the course of four years? Yeah. I mean, it informed the way I did the job. Uh, it, it helped, I think, for me not being, again, like I mentioned a little bit earlier that I never really identified as a Republican or Democrat. Like it wasn't really a conversation growing up. You know, I would fight you to the death <laughs> if you're a Michigan Wolverine, but, um, you know, a Republican yeah. or Democrat just doesn't. So that, that sort of helped. But the way Trump behaved in the office. What it did for me was I knew there was going to be more to the story. This is sort of like the gift of Trump. There's always a kernel of truth in what Trump is saying, right? Like I always try to remind myself of that, of what he was actually trying to say here. Like give it a second, think about this again. And I think it happened to me and other of my colleagues, like you, you sort of hear what you want to hear with Trump, but to do this job and, and you know, report on a daily basis, you really have to kind of go back and look at what he said again, and then make your judgment on how that story should be played. And right. to your point of, you yeah. know, of whether he was fit for office or not, I mean, that's ultimately a choice for voters. And what I could do was tell them what was happening behind the scenes. And knowing what I know about Trump and learned about him along the way, to understand where there was going to be more to the story and where, like, what he was trying to keep from not just us, but American people writ large, and felt like my job was to to tell those stories and then let people decide for themselves. My admiration for you and for everybody who did this job on a daily basis uh, over the course of the four years could not be higher. It really is what, like one of the great challenges, I think. you know. Again, I think the stakes were incredibly high for the country, and I also think it was really hard to do this for all these reasons, because mm -hmm. reporters had to confront a bunch of questions about mm -hmm. the presidency, about their job, about the proper relationship between their job and, and the institution they're covering. Mm -hmm. In a way that, you know, no one covering the Obama administration or the Bush administration or the Clinton administration or the Bush administration or the Reagan administration had to do because of the unique nature of Donald Trump. Yeah. And if you take that, those set of existential kind of questions, really deep questions about the endeavor, you know, what its point is and how to do it, you layer those on top of the fact that you're running at 70 miles an hour constantly with your hair on fire yeah. and that the thing was moving so fast and there was this information overload and the news cycle was sped up the way it was. If you take all of that into it, I'm just surprised there were not more reporters uh, who ended up in mental institutions wrapped in straitjackets. So I should say that I did literally finish this book inside a therapist's office. Um, <laughs> it was a, uh, it was a, it was down the street. She was, the, the therapist was subletting the space because of the pandemic. She couldn't actually see patients in her office. So she was subletting it and I, and I took it over. So, um, you know, somewhat unironically finished this book literally inside a therapist's office. But I will say that, um, you know, all of those challenges you, you mentioned, I, and on top of that is a, 
extremely competitive industry. Yes. Right. And yeah. with like a lot of elbows, not just, you know, aimed at each other or competitors in the press, but a lot of times like on the same team in the same yes. media outlet. Sure. And sure. how I kind of coped with all of it was, was, was two things. One is I was really lucky at the journal to be uh, a part of a, of a team of veteran reporters who really did like look out for each other. I mean, we looked out for each other's schedules, made sure we get, we're getting home to our families. Um, and like, you gotta, you're gonna fight with your editors about what the story is. You're gonna go to the White House and fight with them about every little thing. And there was a sort of collective agreement from the beginning that like the one place we didn't need to fight was with each other. And right. um, I really was very, very lucky with that. And also to have really the, the unconditional love for my, my, my wife and my family and, and really my friends who did not blame me for disappearing, you know, for years and not tending to those relationships like I, I wanted to and should have. When you hear an invocation of Ashley Parker, Bender's, for anybody who doesn't know, Ashley Parker uh, from the Washington Post, uh, Bender's wife, mm -hmm. uh, who um, who is, you know. The best. Just absolutely the best. Yep. One of the great professionals in our business and also just a spectacularly uh, wonderful human being. I mean, it's not just that she's too good for you. I mean, <laughs> tr truly, you've used up your lifetime yep. of good luck and good fortune to have ended up in the relationship you're in. 100% true. And I'm sure it has been incredibly helpful to have a wife uh, who understands really all of the dimensions of this. Yeah. It was like part of the way you survived. She's my best friend. She's my best editor. She's my best publicist in this process. And therapist. And therapist. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> this is a great spot after finishing our joint encomiums to your wife, Ashley, uh, for us to take a break. Uh, and when we come back, uh, we will dive into the horror show that was uh, January 6th. And in particular, what was going on behind the scenes with Donald Trump and Mike Pence, something that our guest Mike Bender has fresh reporting on in his new book, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, the inside story of how Trump lost. And we are back on Hell and High Water with Mike Bender of The Wall Street Journal, brand new, soon to be number one best-selling author of, frankly, we did win this election, to talk about the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. But uh, let's first listen to some recent comments about that fateful day, first by Mike Pence and then by Donald Trump. January 6th was a dark day in the history of the United States Capitol. But thanks to the swift action of Capitol Police and law enforcement, the violence was quelled, the Capitol secured, and we reconvene the Congress the very same day. So that whole uh, event, unfortunate event, just went through Congress and a report was issued and my name wasn't even mentioned. And I appreciate that. I say, though, however, people are being treated unbelievably unfairly. When you look at people in prison and nothing happens to Antifa. And they burned down cities and killed people. So that's Mike Pence at the Reagan Library um, saying that January 6th was a dark day, uh, that law enforcement was heroic and, you know, constitutional order was, thank God, eventually restored. And then you have Donald Trump butted right up against it with him calling it an unfortunate event, the insurrection, the deadly riot at the Capitol where people were killed and, and others were beaten senseless with fire extinguishers and mm -hmm. American flags and their own mm. shields in the case of police, um, Donald Trump, an unfortunate event. Um, yeah. So a pretty stark difference there, Mike. Um, and I said something earlier mm -hmm. about shocking 
but not surprising. And I, in some ways, the Capitol insurrection is the ultimate example of shocking, but not surprising. I mean, I was up there that day and it was shocking for sure uh, mm-hmm. and horrifying and, and depressing and upsetting and traumatic. Yeah. But in some ways, it almost seemed inevitable, not surprising. Like this was how Trump's term kind of had to end when you consider the buildup to it. So, Mike, mm-hmm. you know, in the book, you'd break down the, the different experiences in Trump's world and in Pence's world and where they stand relative to the whole thing today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people are still trying to, you know, get their head around what happened and yeah, just like what happened and why it happened, who was responsible mm-hmm. and what it means. And also another thing that is hard for people to wrap their heads around is the fact that it still looks to a lot of people like Donald Trump basically was perfectly happy, fine with seeing his slavishly loyal vice president hung, strung up by the mob Mm -hmm. because there was Trump stoking the mob, criticizing Pence on Twitter, even as Pence and his family were hiding in a secure location, afraid for their lives. Talk us through that, if you would, please. Yeah. So I, I think I would start to talk about January 6th. I think what this book adds is some of the context on January 5th. He's basically been fight, Trump has been fighting with Pence over this idea of, of overturning the election, of, of objecting to the certification of the results on January 6th. And, you know, has another, you know, um, not really an argument, but another back and forth where it's Trump tells me that Pence never told him no. That Pence never told him he wasn't going to do it. Yeah, I think the truth is that Pence didn't make it explicitly clear. But regardless, he didn't tell Trump yes. And Trump ends this meeting right. the evening of January 5th. And he's got a stack of legislation on his desk. He's got a sign from Congress and papers. And he hears the rally goers outside the Oval Office across the South Lawn already lining up and, and, and partying basically near the ellipse where the rally is going to happen the next morning. And he calls his mid-level staffers, who were still at the right. White House at that point, into the Oval Office, opens the door. This is in January in Washington. It's you know basically freezing in Washington. And instructs them to sit and listen to all of the energy outside, all of the partying, all of the enthusiasm for him out there. And, right. you know, and is sort of bobbing along to the classic rock playing outside and, and, and asks the, the, the folks in the room, you know, do you think there's going to be violence tomorrow? And it's uh, one of the deputy press secretaries tells him no. A lot of their concern, a lot of the concern around Trump at the time was how the Trump rally goers were going to interact with the Trump protesters and whether there was going to be a confrontation there. So Trump is basically told, no, you know, unless the protesters and the rally goers really, you know, mix, you know, there's there's some interaction between the two of them. Everything will be fine. By Trump protesters, you mean anti-Trump protesters. Like That's right. That's there right. might be violence between the anti-Trump protesters versus the MAGA protesters. That's right. So Trump is told, no, there's not going to be any violence tomorrow unless those two groups mix. And Trump stops and looks at him and says, you know, I don't know. Remember, my people are really fired up, which, you know, it, it didn't really, talking to the people who were in the room at the time, didn't really strike them as anything until the next day, right, when... Uh, thinking about that conversation in hindsight gave some of those White House staffers some chills. Yeah. When the sixth happens, we know the broad strokes of what happens that day, but but my reporting on it adds to the story is that Trump was excited to see these people, his supporters, the links they were willing to go for him. That's how he viewed it. Inside the Capitol, Pence was 
inches away from the rioters laying eyes on him. Yeah. Secret Service put him in a, in a little hideaway. Like, when they put him in that room, had it been a minute later, yes. there would have been rioters out in the hallway. You know, and I have details from a call in right. Pence calling into the Pentagon. You have Muriel Bowser, the mayor of Washington, calling Mark Meadows, asking him to step in and have Trump call him off. Uh, Kellyanne Conway is calling into the Oval Office, trying to get Trump to call these folks off. Uh, staff who was in the office were trying to get his attention, focused on the right thing here. Meanwhile, Pence is in a conference call with the nation's military and defense leaders in the Pentagon, basically saying, get the National Guard down here now, right? I mean, it, it falls to Pence right. to bring down yeah. the National Guard, who ends up needing several hours to clear the Capitol. You know, the account in your book, Mike, is incredibly engrossing, and it's one of many reasons to buy the book. And there's questions I think people still have, and I do want to just kind of tease out them with you a little bit. I mean, I think mm -hmm. immediately, I think the day after it was Ben Sass, uh, Republican senator from Nebraska, who I think was quoted saying that he had heard reports coming out of the White mm -hmm. House that said that Trump was watching the insurrection on television and was psyched by what he was seeing. He was psyched by the fact that his people were showing strength, um, which, you know, he told people to come to this rally. He said it would be wild. He said at the rally, you got to show strength. He said over and over again, he wanted to stop the steal. Uh, so, mm. you know, it seems perfectly plausible that Trump was in some primal way pleased to see his people on his behalf going to the Capitol and trying to disrupt the proceedings. Right. He didn't tell them directly specifically to do that. But, you know, you think about everything he said, the totality of his message you know, makes a lot of sense. And as I say, there's some reporting that suggests that's true. But I've been waiting eagerly for more reporting on it because it does go to the heart of two crucial questions that, are, that underlie not just how he was behaving in, the, in that moment, which I think is of interest, and I want more reporting on that, uh, but it goes to these deeper questions. One is, does Trump truly believe, really actually mm -hmm. believe that the election was stolen? That in formulating the big lie, does he know it's a lie? Or is he actually batshit crazy enough to think against all evidence to the contrary and 60 lawsuits that all failed by his legal team that somehow Biden rigged the whole thing and stole the presidency from him? So I want to understand that. That's number one. And number two, on the day, on January 6th, did he actively want his people not just to protest and protest loudly, but to actively disrupt this constitutionally mandated proceeding to actually mm -hmm. try to stop the peaceful transfer of power? I'm willing to believe the answer to that question is yes, but there is a lot of conflicting reporting about mm -hmm. what his actual motivations were and what he hoped to see happen on that day. So again, just to summarize, number one, do you think Trump realized or realizes that the big lie is a big lie? And mm -hmm. number two, what do you think Trump's hopes were on January 6th for what would transpire that day? It, it's a very precise question and the answer is, is much less so. I think it's, yeah, did, did, does Trump believe the election was stolen? I think the, the answer is yes and no, right? And, and people uh, close to him uh, that interacted with him on a daily basis and continue to act with, interact with him on a daily basis are struggling with that question too. A lot of them don't know if he truly believes it was stolen or if it's all part of, you know, the, the political narrative here. And I think it, it, I think it's partly yes to no. I think he realizes he lost, but that, that there were some irregularities and that certainly, you know, the policy question here of how the election rules were changed, you know, effectively at the last minute, right? Which is not, it's, which is much different from stealing the election, but he puts it all together to 
conclude that the election has been stolen. I, I, I think that's what he believes. I mean, that's my impression from all the reporting I've done, especially when I've talked to so many people who have had conversations with him in which he's acknowledged in one way or another that he lost or that, you know, we, we you know, we gave it our all. And right. um, another that, you know, some of these things, uh, post-election December to-do list, like we'll leave that for the next guy, right? right. Like things you don't say if you actually think you're going to be in office in, in, in February. But the, you know, when, when it comes to what his motivation is, you know, I think this brings it back to the, the sort of theme here inside the book of how, uh, of how da- dangerous things became, not just with the with the administration, but how it plays out with his supporters. They take him at his word. I mean, they, they do. I mean, they, it, it's it's it, at least in a sense of like how to defend Trump and what he's saying. They will always come down on that side of the ledger, and to the point where a lot of them who I've spoken to were ready to lynch his running mate on January right. 6th. It just immediately, and the, it, it, the most loyal man in the administration, publicly and mostly privately, in a minute, it's all gone, and he's immediately a traitor. And I just think, like, it's, it, it, at the end of the day, it just comes, to, for Trump, it comes back to how he's perceived. And and I, I'm reminded of an interview I had with him back in 2017, in which we were talking, I asked him about all of the internal knife fighting with it was Scaramucci was had been communications director at the time the stuff with him and Reince and Trump just dismissed all of it as yeah. as and says well they're just fighting from they're fighting for my love and you know I that was one of the most revealing things he that he, he had told to me in, in the course of five years yes and I think I mean Trump and definitely always has been with one of these people in the genre of you know, there's a lot of chaos around him. There's always been a lot of chaos around him, and he and he instills it, right? He creates the circumstance in which that chaos take place. Takes place. Mike Bloomberg, frankly, was like this also. Mm-hmm. Like the notion of like setting up internal Hillary Clinton is <laughs> our campaigns too. It's like setting up, not having clear lines of authority in order to have. They wanted there to be power struggles. It was like in some ways, like they didn't mind seeing seeing competing factions and seeing people struggling for power because in some way the the struggle for power internally was a manifestation of their desire to get closer to the to the principle it's amazing the number of of powerful successful executives and candidates who i have seen over time who are willing to tolerate a degree of of internal conflict and indeed warfare because it somehow feeds some kind of psychological need that they have. Like, it's just an amazing thing. I mean, you have others at the exact opposite of this, of this dimension, which is really, I mean, in some ways, both Biden and Obama in different ways, um, incredible, you know, amount of very small circles of people who've known each other for a very long time, who are incredibly in sync. And there's very little factionalism. They have other problems. They have other, there are other flaws that they have, but they're, they don't want to operate in an atmosphere of chaos. Like Trump kind of thrives on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, to the extent that the chaos is reflective of, of as you just put it, you know they're they're all fighting for my love. Um, it does lead us back to this thing, you know that it it's, it strikes me as that at least to some extent Trump in, would have enjoyed seeing some elements of January sixth, right? That at least some elements of it he would have found satisfying that there was this degree of intensity intensity among his followers. They're willing to do this thing that had never been done before. I can't help but believe on some level that that's right. Yeah. I mean, that's what my reporting is. is That was definitely part of the dynamic that day was that he was surprised by the level of fighting that they were willing to go to to prove their love to him. 
what then do you say about this other question, which goes to the Trump Pence thing again, mm-hmm. which is do what, you know, I think your book is silent on this question and maybe because you felt like having reported it, reported it out, you didn't get to the point where you felt like you had enough clarity to be able to put it in the book. But, you know, Trump sending that tweet at 2.20, whatever in the afternoon, the the one that attacked Pence, literally as Pence was being essentially mm-hmm. like within a couple minutes of when Trump Pence had been taken out of the room, you know, is became a feature of the impeachment trial for one thing. Mm-hmm. And it raised this question of whether Trump was, as he seemed to be, willing to throw Pence to the lions right right there. And your point, which is that there were people who were like, hang Mike Pence, and they meant it, right? Yeah. And that well, what Trump's disposition was, does Trump not really understand that Pence is in jeopardy? Does Trump not care that Pence is in jeopardy? Is all Trump just thinking about is himself? He's just mad at Pence. And so all he's focused on is, you know, he's not really thinking about anything beyond what's right in front of his face, which is that Pence has somehow betrayed him. Like, how does one interpret the way that Trump, again, either seemed to or was willing to kind of did not seem to care that much about his loyal vice president's physical safety and his family on that yeah, day. Yeah, did- absolutely. I mean, that that is one thing, an area where I repeatedly tried to ask him about in, uh, in both of our interviews down in Mar-a-Lago. And right. he, he refused to, he would just refuse to engage in it. He answered every question by some form of telling me how disappointed he was in Pence, right? So that, that also reveals kind of where he, what he's thinking of this is, and, and it's in terms of himself and what, Pence, you know, Pence was supposed to be his lieutenant and wasn't supporting him at the end of the day. And the rest are just consequences of that. Right. It, it was really fascinating the way that, that, that Trump would not engage on these questions, because at that point, um, you know, Pence, Trump has called Pence several times since, um, yeah. you know, uh, since leaving office. Uh, Pence takes the calls. Right. And. It's amazing that like anyone that would feel this degree of disappointment in someone and feel like this is such a betrayal and call them. Yeah. And then that someone would put their lives in jeopardy and their families and take the call. And, and so, I, I, I mean, I asked Trump a couple of times, like, well, Pence must have apologized. Right. I mean, he, you know, to, for you to call him, he yeah. must have. And he says, no, you know, he, he says, well, I, we don't talk about it. <laughs> like, I, I don't bring it up. Right. I find it, I, I, I mean, I read that part in the book and I did find mm-hmm. it kind of unfathomable. I find the whole thing is still, I mean, hard to really process on some level. And I don't feel like we, I mean, maybe it's just part of like, there are some elements of Trump's personality and frankly, Pence's and some elements of this relationship that are just actually kind of impenetrable on some mm-hmm. level because their, their, their psyches are too clouded in some ways to really get to the bottom of it. Um, you know, I, I ask you, you know, as you, as you step away from it, and as we bring this to a close here, you know, you, you spent this time with Trump. You went down to Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, he's in exile. He's in exile. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, after January 6th, I think the conventional view is correct. Right. Where there was a moment right after January 6th when the discussions about the 25th Amendment were being circulated. Mm-hmm. It was not crazy to think that the Republican Party had either been pushed too far or would take this moment to rid itself of Trump and make a clean break or at least a large part of the party would. And then a few days passed and it didn't happen, right? And Trump's degree of power and influence over the party is, is as great as it ever was. And it raises large fundamental questions about like whether Trump is actually a cause or a symptom. And the big lie lives mm-hmm. and, you know, Republican candidates all over the country are pledging their fealty to it. It's driving a lot of this. I don't want to call it reform, but voting reform legislation in a lot of the states. There's huge fundamental questions here, right? That have come out of this. And Trump is very much in the center of, the, of our discussion still, even though he's not on Twitter and not in our faces all day long every day. The question that arises out of it is, 
where do you think it's going? Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think Trump now wants? Mm-hmm. Is it just as simple as he really wants to run again in 2024 and we should mm-hmm. expect him to do that? Or is it more complicated than that? I think it's more complicated. I think in, in July of 2021, I would tilt it a little bit more toward he wants to run than I would have a few months ago, right after office. I, but the way he's talked to me about that question and the way he's talked publicly about it, it, it suggests to me that he's very much interested in in validating himself, not just in the, the 2022 midterms with the endorsements he's making, but but then quite possibly, potentially in 2024. And you know the, what the book lays out here is that whatever choice Republicans make in 2022, how they're going to decide to redefine themselves or, or whether they will, they're going into that decision eyes wide open. They know right. exactly what what Trump is capable of uh, as a president and as a political candidate. And that's the that's the decision facing them now. If nothing else, this period has been, I think, incredibly clarifying. And, you know, again, for a lot of people who thought there would be post-Trump, that there would be a civil war in the Republican Party between, you know, the old-fashioned establishmentarians who would try to reclaim the party versus the Trump faction that would continue to go in this populist kind of direction. I mean, it's been incredible. I never really necessarily thought that was the case, but many people believe that's what was going to happen if Trump got beat. And it really, the fact that that nothing of the sort is happening, the fact that it is just that Trump's power over the party is only consolidated really has been, been, been embracing and its clarity, it seems to me. And the fact that he spent his time with you in these post-election interviews focused almost entirely on trying to make his claims of election fraud, I think is very telling. And I assume that as frustrating as it must have been for you as an author to have the interviews yeah. go like that, it does speak to, I think, something about the future that's uh, and his future and what he imagines his future will be. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Trump spent four years talking about his victory in 2016 and lost. So is he going to be able to spend the next four years talking about his loss and win? I'm not going to put anything past Donald Trump at this point, but it's uh, it's hard for my uh, simple mind to see see that path. Is it really? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's he's definitely the front runner for the Republican nomination in, in 24. I don't have any doubt about that. But who are the voters right now who voted for Biden and are saying, like, man, I wish I would have voted for Trump? I mean, I'm sure there are some, but I just don't know what that what that argument is right now. And Trump did get 75 million votes, but it wasn't as many as Biden. And like that's what we need to change in 2024. And I just, at this point, three years out, it's hard for me to see what that argument is. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that, obviously. But I will say, you know, a lot of people spent a lot of time in the four years, 2016 to 2020, making the argument, including, I think, me at various times, which is like, who can you imagine that voted for uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016, who will now vote for Donald Trump. And it turns out that there were some. <laughs> um, and more importantly, that what, and again, I, more importantly, there were, you know, that was not really the game. The game was about trying to find people who didn't vote for either Hillary Clinton yeah. or Donald Trump in 2016 and try to turn those people out. And so I think one of the questions going forward to your answer to your question is, you know, not that there will be Biden voters who flip to Trump, but that will there be Biden voters? A, will Biden will Biden be on sure. the ballot, number one? Yeah. And number two, will there be Biden voters who decide that they don't want to vote for either one and just decide to stay home? The composition of the electorate is not fixed, right? So I think that's one yeah. of the large questions. And I'm not I'm not trying to say that I think Trump will or won't. I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that talking obsessively about 
about your loss and mm-hmm. spreading a giant conspiracy theory about it for the next four years is not a winning uh, recipe. But then if you'd asked me whether I thought the way Trump conducted himself for the last four years was a winning recipe to win in 2020, I would have said absolutely not. No, 100%. I mean, there's a lot more data points we have b- between now and then. And I know that his advisors around him are trying to keep his powder dry. I mean, 2022 is going to be very informative for, for him and the party. And which way some of these endorsements go will help him decide what his next step should be. I'm dying to watch the Trump DeSantis war. That's really my hope. My, my hope and my and it would be talk about a thing that would position Mike Bender for for the coverage of 2024. Can you imagine like of of where the future of the Republican Party comes down to an all out open mm-hmm. war between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis? Yeah, uh, in the state that in the state that you know so well. Yeah, I mean, you would be. That would be the golden ticket. Not that you don't have the golden ticket already, having written this amazing book. Frankly, we did win this election by Mike Bender. There it is, right there. It's a good looking cover. It's an incredible book. It's going to sell a bajillion copies. I mean, I, I just couldn't be more delighted for you, man. It's an important book for history, but it's also a big bowl of candy. Another John Homan-ism, um, which is he always wanted you to give the readers a big bowl of candy. And this is also a big bowl of candy. It's like there's just an incredible amount of really tasty reporting in here. You know, congratulations, man. You are it's a mitzvah, as they say. Thank you so much, John. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Mike Bender for being with us on this special two-part episode. If you enjoyed this special two-part episode of Hell and High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and share us, rate us, and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the aforementioned splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 